Isaac Watts is sometimes referred to as the godfather of English hymnody. That's quite a lofty title, it seems. He's given that title for a number of reasons. For one, he wrote more than 600 hymns in his lifetime, and we actually sing many of those songs even to this very day. Songs like, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed. He wrote the lyrics to Joy to the World. He wrote the song, We're Marching to Zion, amongst many others. What you may not know about Isaac Watts, though, is that we owe him a debt of gratitude for many of the other songs that we sing in our hymnal. In fact, many, if not all, of the songs that we've sung tonight. You see, in 1707, Watts published his first book of hymns. It was entitled Hymns and Spiritual Songs, which at the time was a very bold and daring move. Because prior to the 1700s, the practice of many congregations in their worship assemblies was to only sing Old Testament psalms in their worship. That's what was going on in most churches prior to the 1700s. Watts, though, and many others like him, had grown to dislike that practice, only singing those psalms of David and the other psalmists. Because it seemed to restrict the, uh, the Christian, the Christian from being able to celebrate the various things that are found in the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the things that are more fully illuminated in the pages of the New Testament. In fact, in the very preface of his hymnal, on kind of the front page of his hymnal, Watts addressed the worship situation at the time in which he lived, and he even offered up kind of a defense for writing and publishing so many of these new songs. At least they would have been new to the people at that time. He said about that, he said the following, and you'll have to pardon some of the Elizabethan grammar in this. He said, many ministers and many private Christians have long groaned under this inconvenience, and have wished rather than actually attempted a reformation. And so, at their importunate and repeated requests, I have for some years past, I have for some years past devoted many hours of leisure to this service, to the service of writing new psalms. He said, far be it from my thoughts to lay aside the psalms of David in public worship. Few can pretend so great a value for them as myself. Not dismissing the Psalms of David. Those are good. Lots of good things written in there. But he went on to say, it must be acknowledged still that there are a thousand lines in the Psalms to which are not made for a saint in our day to assume as his own. Think about all the things that are written in the Psalms. So many of the things that are written in the Psalms pertain specifically to the children of Israel. That pertain specifically to David's life and the things that he was enduring. He says there are also many other deficiencies of light and glory which our Lord Jesus and His apostles have supplied in the writings of the New Testament. We're missing out on lots of good stuff that we could be singing about that's found in the New Testament. And so he said, with this advantage, I have composed these spiritual songs which are now presented to the world. I must tell you, I am very appreciative of Isaac Watts and his efforts to bring forth, bring to the forefront hymns that are based on the New Testament Scriptures. Because his work helped to usher in a whole new era of hymn writing that does not hide from praising Jesus and praising Jesus' work and celebrating what Jesus did in authoring our salvation. In fact, I thought about it with all the songs we sung tonight. All those songs said something about Jesus in them. 
If we were in a worship assembly prior to 1700, we probably wouldn't have sung those songs. It would have been considered kind of just outside the norm. We've been singing songs that in many ways have been inspired by the work of Isaac Watts. And for that, I am thankful. When Watts published that hymnal some 300 plus years ago, he had the songs arranged in topical sections. And our hymn book does that to a certain degree. And under the section that was titled, Hymns Prepared for the Holy Ordinance of the Lord's Supper, under that section was the very first public printing of the song that we're going to look at and we're going to sing in just a moment. It is the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. You can grab a songbook and be turning there to number 189 as we think just a little bit about the words of this great song. Of all of the songs that Isaac Watts authored, uh, this is pretty much widely considered, almost unanimously considered, to be his greatest hymn. In fact, if you were to go home this evening and if you were to do a search for you know, the top ten gospel hymns of all time, you're probably going to find, when I survey the wondrous cross, on most people's top ten list. Hymn writers will tell you it is one of the greatest songs ever written. And it is a beautiful song that just masterfully highlights what is the most significant event in all of human history, and that is the sacrifice, the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we have lots of songs in our songbook, lots of good songs about the cross and about the events surrounding the cross. Sang some of those this evening. I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary and songs like that. But this song, I believe, has some really powerful and very enduring lines in it that have really caused it to stand the test of time. For example, verse 1, which contemplates just the value of the cross. Look at verse 1. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gains I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Now, it's true that we cannot survey the wondrous cross in a physical sense. We can't see it with our literal eyes. But we can envision the cross and that scene, we can do that in our mind's eye. And when we do that, when we take what's written in the pages of Scripture, and certainly we'll have to use kind of our imagination a little bit, I think when we do that, we become just overwhelmed by what it is that we see. As we picture there, the Prince of Glory dying for us. That expression, Prince of Glory, is probably borrowed from the language of 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 8. When Paul writes there about how they crucified the Lord of Glory. The question is, how much is that worth to us? What's the value of that to us? Well, this song answers the question, really, and the song suggests that, well, that value ought to be immeasurable. You can't put a price tag on it. My richest gain I count but loss. That's probably adapted from Paul's language in Philippians chapter 3 and verses 7 and 8. When Paul says, I've counted everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And how in the world could we even begin to compare our, our most valuable possession? Think about whatever that one thing that you own, that's your most valuable possession. Can you even begin to compare that to the cost of your redemption in Jesus Christ? How could you ever, even thinking about that last expression in verse 1, how could we ever even begin to take pride in any of our meager earthly achievements when you compare it to what Christ did? In fact, that thought about pride really segues perfectly right into verse number 2 because verse number 2 helps us to see 
that the only kind of boasting we can do is boasting in the cross. Verse 2, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord. All the vain things that have charmed me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. There's no doubt about it that these words are taken from the thoughts that Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6 and in verse 14 when he said, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul there is talking about sacrifice. And that's what Isaac Watts talks about here in the second part of this second verse. This verse forces us really to, to examine ourselves, doesn't it? It causes us to ask ourselves... Have I sacrificed, first of all, anything for Jesus and for His kingdom? Have I sacrificed even just a portion, a portion of the vanities and the meaningless things of this world for the one who was willing to sacrifice everything on my behalf? And then verse 3, which is arguably one of the most poetic lines in our hymnals. See... See from His head and His hands and His feet, that is, from top to bottom, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? This third verse prompts us to visualize the events of the cross as best as we possibly can. Through the eye of faith, we're able to do that, aren't we? We're able to see Christ's bleeding form. And hopefully whenever we see that, when we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, or hopefully just in other times in our life, when we think about Jesus and what He did, hopefully that just has a gripping effect on us. And it ought to grip us not just because of His agony, but because of the reason for His agony. And I think that's really what the songwriter's getting at here when he talks about that. That it is our folly and our sin that made the cross necessary in the first place. And it is at the cross where sorrow and love, they perfectly meet. You know, Isaiah 53 describes Jesus as a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with griefs. Our sins grieved the Lord. The way that those people that were standing at the foot of the cross, the way that they were acting toward Him, it grieved Him at His heart. And on top of all of that, even while He is grieving, He is demonstrating in the most tangible way possible His incredible love for sinners that are so unworthy, just like you and just like me. That combination of sorrow and love, that is is what makes the cross so wondrous to behold. Finally then, it is verse 4. That really does force us. It is the part that forces us to make some application. You see, it is the verse that forces us to think about the demands of the cross. Verse 4. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would still be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. You know what? What could we possibly give in return for salvation? Are there ever enough thank yous that we could say? Is there any gift that we could ever think of on this earth that we could present back to God and say, here you go, God, fair trade. You give me salvation. You gave me the gift of your Son. and Here's what I'm going to give you. 
Is there any present that would ever begin to match that? Absolutely not. Nothing would ever be enough. There's nothing that we could do to ever begin to repay what Jesus did for us. Which is why, in the final analysis, the only thing that we can give is just ourselves. My life, my soul, my all. That is my loyalty, my allegiance, my service, my everything to serve the King of Kings. I think there's echoes in that verse of what Romans 12 talks about. About presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice for the Lord. That is, I'm going to live for Jesus in every way possible. When Jesus says to don't do this, stay away from sin, I'm going to do that. When Jesus says to pursue after things of righteousness, I'm going to do that too. I'm going to be living for Him, giving Him everything. The cross demands that I do just that. And really that is the question as we extend the invitation of the Lord. Am I doing that? Am I giving the Lord my soul, my life, my all? It seems in many ways that that really is the perfect thought to sing an invitation song with. What am I doing with this wondrous gift of salvation that was expressed on the cross of Calvary? Am I doing anything with it? Am I moved in any kind of way whatsoever by what took place there some 2,000 years ago? If you're not a Christian, I sure would hope this evening that you would be moved, you would be stirred to action, that you would be caused to realize, you know what, I, that's a moving story. It's amazing what the Lord did for me, and, I, and I'm, I'm just bewildered that He would love me so much. But that then ought to move us to do some things, to confess our faith in Jesus as Lord, to repent and turn away from sin and turn to God, and then to be baptized in water for the remission of our sins. Those are the things that Jesus says to do, and in reality... It's not a lot. Compared to what He did for us, He's not asking a whole lot from us. He's simply just asking us to put Him first in our lives. Can we help somebody this evening to take those initial steps to become a Christian? Brother or sister, those final thoughts there at the end of verse 4, so applicable to those who are the children of God. Is the cross still having that effect in my life? Where it is receiving my life, my soul, my all. If it's not, repent of that. If we can encourage you and help you in some way, pray for you this evening, then we stand ready to help you to make your life right with God as well. Whatever your need might be, won't you take advantage of the blessings that took place on the wonderful cross at Calvary? Won't you do that right now by standing as we sing?